I'm Matthew McCabe. Welcome to Miracle Voices. Each episode, we will be delving into stories of forgiveness, healing, and transformation that have come about from integrating the principles of the book, A Course in Miracles. If you want to learn more about A Course in Miracles, visit www.acim.org. If you'd like to visit the Miracle Voices site, please go to www.miraclevoices.org. If you feel inspired to make a love offering, please visit us at miraclevoices.org forward slash donate. All donations go support the work of the Foundation for Inner Peace, the publisher of A Course in Miracles. Now here's your program. Hi, Judy. Welcome back to another episode. Oh, thank you so much, Matthew. I've been looking forward to this one. Me too. And we have an interesting theme today, signs and wonders, and all the little clues along the way that we're on a, a path that we maybe don't understand, but there is a rhyme and reason, isn't there? There certainly has been in my life, and I'm assuming I'm no different than anyone else. Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about what's on your mind lately with the signs and wonders. I've been thinking whether or not this is something I should ever do in public, And last night, I got a very, very strong feeling of inner guidance is that if it certainly could be helpful to some people and reaffirm their own sense that we're here for a purpose and we're given a purpose if we ask, and also that there is no death. And since I'm on the latter part of life, we think about that quite a lot. And I just felt that You know, if this could be helpful, fine. If not, I enjoy telling a story, as you already know. (laughs) Yes. Well, tell us a little bit about it. I mean, you've got very interesting history here. I don't know if everybody's aware, but you have a a grandmother and then a daughter that have a special link. Can you tell us about that? Yes. In fact, I lived with them both at the same time. My mother, my father, my grandmother, who was widowed, and my daughter and my son, And I all lived together for two and a half years in Brooklyn while I was going through a divorce. And was I ever glad to have them? Uh, They were welcoming us with open arms. And so what could have been the most miserable time of our lives turned out to be comforting, secure, and again, along this part of the path. Because it was then as an adult that I started to make the links between my grandmother's uh, very uh, natural uh, psychic abilities that didn't seem to be memorable in any way, but were just part of her persona and who she was, and my daughter's burgeoning psychic abilities, which seemed to be even stronger. I would watch the two of them play Scrabble, and it was a riot. They'd put their hands in the Scrabble bag, and either they had superior sense of touch or whatever, and they could pick out seven letters that would be a word already. So it was entertainment for us. Uh, but we did know that that these two people, my elderly grandmother, who was then just approaching 90, and my, my little girl, who was about uh, five or six at the time, had a very, very close relationship in bond in them understanding each other at that level. I didn't call it levels then, but I realize now it was that level. It was a beyond the body level. Yeah. So, I mean, where we are now as a culture, these things are still considered kind of woo-woo, the paranormal. I bet it was even more so 40 or 50 years ago when you were really doing your deep dive into this. But the course says this type of thing is very natural using more of your mind. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Um, I think it's in the teacher's manual. I'm sure it's in the teacher's manual. Uh, There's a section, uh, psychic abilities, uh, real or natural. And that segment talks about that, which we call the psychic, is just sort of an opening of further uh, understanding and experiencing of more than self or more than the ego, I would say. Uh, when things like that happen, like if you wake up suddenly and there's your mother sitting on your bed and she's telling you goodbye, she lives thousands of miles away, and the next morning you get a call from your dad who says mom passed away peacefully last night, you already know it, you said, I know she came to me. At that time, it doesn't seem to be that odd. Uh, I used to teach a class years ago at New York University, 
and it was called experimental parapsychology. And it was dealing with all of these subjects in a more uh, organized way, I would say, and what people were doing all over the world in the universities and the hospitals to discuss this highest, higher potential of the human being. So uh, it was definitely in the wind when I was a young woman and um, so much so that I, that I was offered a position to teach at New York University. And that all came about because between my grandmother and my daughter, I had to decide I had to follow this up with reading and then eventually classes living in New York City. There were indeed classes in this and then eventually attending the new school for social research, which had programs in uh, psychic exploration. So I had a, about as good a background intellectually, academically, as you could get in the United States at that time. No other institution was doing that. And then uh, one day I was asked to sub for somebody who was teaching a class. And we went from more the philosophical into the psychic and found out the whole class was tremendously interested. And then it just so happened that the <laughs> just so happened, right? That the, the board of directors, one of the board of directors' sons was in that class and told him about it. And he said, gee, that would be something good to offer at New York University. So hence, with no training whatsoever, <laughs> I was thrust into the faculty of NYU uh, and was given a class of uh, adult education, adult students in the evenings twice a week to teach uh, experimental parapsychology. Uh, it was then the subject recognized by the AAAS, the Academy of Arts and Sciences. So, and in fact, Margaret Mead, the great philanthropist, was its champion, and she actually got it on the program to be admitted as a science, which before it wasn't. So it wasn't that there was a lot of antipathy or fear about the subject. People had not yet recognized that it was taking its place among the sciences. That was sort of the, the tenure at the time. Um, Is Margaret Mead the one with that famous quote, uh, only, like uh, only a small group of people can change the world? Yes, this was one of her themes, in fact. It was interesting that I lived in New York City right across the street from Central Park West and the Museum of Natural History, and she lived in the next building because she worked at the Museum of Natural History. So I would see her walking back and forth. She had a very distinctive gait. She had a limp at the time and she was sort of bent over. But she was full of life and tremendous inspiration to so many people. So when Margaret Mead spoke, she had done her work. She was an older woman by that time. And the scientific world listened. And that is how parapsychology became endorsed as one of the sciences of the AAAS. So, you know, things were happening. They were fermenting. That had nothing whatsoever to do with me, but I was sort of swept up on it and was very lucky to be at the right time and the right place. I look back on it now and I say, well, is it luck? Is it coincidence or is it part of the plan? And I actually believe the latter. <laughs> Gosh, Yes. We really have a lot of that going on right now where we're looking backwards and seeing how, you know, that 2020 hindsight of how everything's put together. So what was it like growing up, you know, with this daughter that's psychic and this mother that's psychic and you're kind of sandwiched between them watching this all? Was there any kind of uh, funny things or things that happened over and over again where you're just thinking, wow, well, this is crazy? You know, basically, it was my grandmother, not my mother. My, Sorry, your grandmother. My, my mother would just watch with a great deal of of patient amusement, uh, but certainly total acceptance. Uh, there was it was natural. That's a funny word to use, huh? It was natural. It was just like breathing. It was like having a son who is painting from the time he's two or three, and he, you know, that he has this ability, and you want to encourage it. Or having a daughter who sits down to play the piano at an early age and seems to have an ear for it. Uh, there are a lot of things that we start early and are natural. So with my daughter, it was very natural, but there were unusual things like finding things that were missing, even though they weren't hers. Uh, we called her the finder, but no one made a fuss over it. It was just 
part of her, her nature. My son seemed to be scientifically gifted and that was part of his nature. And uh, I think, you know, she wasn't treated as if she was special in that way until she was a bit older when I started to get involved in the science of and met a lot of people who were doing the work and of course would talk about my interest and how it started and they wanted to meet her. And so I would have dinner parties at our home that seemed now friends coming over for dinner. And if she wanted to talk to them, she could. And eventually she was asked to go to various uh, hospitals, local and universities to undertake uh, some psychic testing, which they were doing already. And, oh, she loved that. She loved that attention. And also there's some really cute guys doing <laughs> <laughs> doing the groundwork. So uh, it, it was, it was, it felt natural to me. I, I, she might say something else and someday you'll have her on and ask her what it was like. But then, you know, mothers and daughters and fathers and sons and fathers and daughters and mothers, they don't necessarily see like our stories are our stories. What you're hearing today is my story. Sure. And there's a lot of other connections and things like crossroads that intersect with this story. Um, and one of them is, does human consciousness survive bodily death? Can you talk a little bit about that and reincarnation and everything going on there? Oh, would I ever? Um, because it's an integral part of my personal preparation to receive A Course in Miracles. And when I look back on it and tell it as a story, it really seems bizarre. But as it was happening, again, I use the word normal. It seemed very, it flowing. It didn't feel as if all of a sudden I was brought up short with something that could be threatening. It wasn't like that at all. It was just a flow. So I loved my grandmother dearly, and she was already approaching 90. And uh, that was very old for then. Now it's not because I'm already 90. Now it's not old at all. <laughs> In those days, it was certainly old. And um, Dr. Ian Stevenson was known worldwide for his work in reincarnation. And uh, he was a very, very amazing man who was head of the Department of Psychology at University of Virginia, a doctor, uh, a psychiatrist, a well-known researcher on reincarnation, and likewise subjects, a member of the American Society of Psychical Research and very revered. And I met him through my interest in the whole field and going to meetings at the American Society for Psychical Research and becoming um, a, a board member. They had an advisory board and an inner board, and I was part of an advisory board of people. So we, we got to know each other, and I told him about my daughter, of course, and the work that was done with her, and he was interested, so we became friends. And then he told me about the work he was doing. His major interest, he said, uh, was still reincarnation, but he was particularly interested in, does human consciousness survive bodily death? Does human consciousness survive bodily death? Now, who wouldn't be interested in that? <laughs> and, and although I never much thought about it, um, I didn't have anyone in the family or close to me very old except my grandmother, and she was so vital that I didn't even think of her dying momentarily. Uh, but he said he was doing a, a scientific test and would my grandmother like to be part of it because she was indeed in her latter part of life and that's what he needed, people who were going to move on <laughs> fairly soon and he could affect this test. And the test that he developed was very primitive. It was with a combination padlock, which you have to open according to lead, uh, to numbers like 24 right, and then you go 14 left, and then 16 right, and then turn it around four times and then open it up. So combination padlocks, you don't need a key. In fact, that's the purpose of them, but you have a password in order to get in. And my grandmother's role was to take a combination padlock that I would buy in the store and uh, think of a six-letter word that could be translated into numbers that was important to her. 
a word that was so integral to her thinking that when she passed over, if there was such a thing as human consciousness surviving bodily death, she would be able to remember the word and give it back to anyone with mediumistic talents that could get in touch with her. Now, mediumistic talents at that stage of my work and Ian Stevenson's and the ASPR were being investigated all the time. In fact, the American Society of Psychical Research, which was an offshoot of the British Society of Psychical Research, which was much older and formed by a group of very famous scientists and philosophers, uh, that was their main interest. So this was not something new that had just come about in that phase of human academic history, but there was a lot of um, literature about it already, much of which I had read. And so the idea of her setting this combination padlock and then making sure that it was wound you know, carefully and so there was no way of opening it. No one else would know the combination. I would then register the lock with Dr. Stevenson at University of Virginia. He'd put it in a, a, a vault that was well sealed. And the, the idea was after she passed on that there were five mediums who would try to contact her they didn't know each other. They didn't live near each other, but there were five workers who worked with scientific people and they would try to get the combination lock uh, password and see whether the lock would open. And that, as far as he was concerned, was the first step in his program towards developing the concept that human consciousness does indeed survive bodily death, which, by the way, he believed in totally. Huh. So what happened next then? What happened next was I asked my grandmother, does she want to be a part of this? And she thought about it and she said, why? And I said, because, you know, I'm, I'm working with this Dr. Stevenson and uh, I explained together, you know, what the program was. And I said, by the way, do you believe that when you die, that there's a part of you, a conscious part of you that still survives, call it what you will, but do you believe that? And she said, I never thought about it. I said, well, think about it now. And she said, <laughs> okay. And she thought about it. And we were from Brooklyn and we sometimes would imitate the Brooklyn accent. <laughs> although I don't think we deeply, heavily <laughs> were stamped by it. You can tell I'm a New Yorker. But, but she thought about it for a second. I said, do you, do you think that the human being consciousness survives bodily death? And she said, I guess it couldn't wait, <laughs> which to her meant, you know, well, you know, uh, you might as well think about that. It does, because if it doesn't, there's nothing to lose. And if it does, there's nothing. Right, to lose. Right. So she did set the combination padlock, but her fingers were very arthritic. And uh, she told me she had a lot of trouble not choosing the word, but she had a lot of trouble setting it because she wasn't sure between her failing eyesight and her fingers, which was so painful that she actually did it the way it should be done. I remember her saying that to me. Didn't matter, took it the way it was, sent it on. The next thing that happened <laughs> was she died. Um, about six months later, and the first thing I was supposed to do besides helping my family with the funeral and the burial, um, was to call Dr. Ian Stevenson and say, my grandmother has passed. And uh, what's the next step? What should I do? And I actually called him the day after she died. And he said to me, I want you to go to a medium in London who is considered one of the best in the world and we've worked with before. She has no idea who we send her in advance, man, woman, where they're from, no idea, doesn't want to because she's authentic and uh, she doesn't do any behind the scenes research and there were no computers at the time. And I promised to go to her. At the same time, while I was cleaning up my grandmother's room and uh, the family wasn't in it, they were downstairs, 
I heard, not the same moment, but I think actually a little bit before I made the call, go see Ina Twig. So when I heard from Dr. Ian Stevenson, already in my inner mind, I had heard that name, but I had never read about her. And since it wasn't my particular field of interest, um, I probably had never talked to anyone about mediumship. I can't say for sure, because looking back is a long time. But my guess is that this was one of those coincidences, which right. is sort of, well, it's an accident arranged by God, right? Right. <laughs> that he gives me the name of the person that I also heard while I was cleaning up a room. So my husband and I, Bob Scutch was my husband, and he and I went off to London that night, uh, he carrying the tape recorder, because in those days, they were not what we have that we can hold in one hand, but a fairly heavy Sony device. And it was real to real. And uh, we went to London and we were given her number to call. We got there very early in the morning and she was kind of annoyed because she didn't feel like seeing anyone that day. And uh, when she was about to hang up on me, mission aborted, she said, oh, all right, all right, you come over. My misty people are giving me hell. So I guess she had a bunch of misty people hanging around and they would say, no, 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 you got to take this one. In any event, we took a cab to East Acton and uh, where she lived, which is on the outskirts of London. There was a very ordinary looking woman in her late 50s and her husband and their dog Chumley waiting for us and giving us tea. And we sat down and then she said, come into the room, which was a very brightly lit living room with the window curtains up, no woo-woo stuff with the lights off and touching hands, just sitting there in front of her. And she said, I assume you came about someone who's just passed. Do you have anything from this person? And I had my grandmother's wedding ring. And the instant she had it in her hand, uh, she was very enthusiastic and upbeat. She said, oh, isn't she lovely? Isn't she lovely? Oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm so delighted she's here. She said, my dear, you're up already, and you just passed on a few days ago. So I guess I guess the common knowledge at the time is when you die, you sort of wait a few days and take a nice long nap before you start functioning again. But my grandma was never like that. She'd be up baking five o'clock in the morning. So I knew my grandmother didn't sleep much and she wasn't about to sleep now. And uh, so she held the ring and she started telling things to me that uh, some of them were, I didn't understand. They were all being tape recorded and later transcribed. And some of them sounded kind of familiar, but some of them were so right on. I was almost speechless. Here's an example. When my grandmother was dying, it was slow and very languorous. She was in bed and she was slipping in and out of a coma. No pain, but just like the, the Chinese would say, the chi was leaking out of her. The energy was leaking out of her. And uh, I was sitting on her bed holding her hand. And at one point she opened her eyes and she said to me, am I still here? And I said, yes, honey, you are. She said, whatever for? And I said, well, I don't know, but I'm sure glad that you are. And she said, but the hands are being held out to me. So I realized she had had a dream or an experience where a bunch of hands were held out to her. And I said, who did they look like? And she said, no faces, just hands. And I said, were they friendly? Oh, yes. And I said, do you want to go to them? And she said, oh, yes. And I realized I was holding her hand. I was keeping her from moving on because I did not want her to leave me. And so I let go of her hand and I said aloud, okay, my darling, I let you go. Go in peace. I love you. And the next morning at 5.30 in her sleep, she passed away. I realized that I was grounding her or holding her there. Now, this could be fanciful, but that's what it felt like. It felt my grandmother was telling me other hands were being held out to her, and she wanted to go to them. It was a very nice metaphor, I thought, but I was holding her. She didn't say that. I knew her, and I let go of her hand, and that's those are the words I said. And, uh, and then she passed on the next day, and I called Dr. Ian Stevenson. I heard, go see Ina Twig. 
And off we went. So the very first thing Enid Twig said to me after we were seated and she was holding my grandmother's wedding ring in her hands and she was saying how energetic she was and how strong after she just passed a couple of days before. And she said, your grandmother wants you to know she was so happy that you understood about the hands and you let go of her hand as you said, all right, darling. I let you go, go in peace, I love you. And I gasped because those were the exact words I had used. <laughs> and you know, they, what is the expression? You had me at hello. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. She, had me, she had me at that phrase because I, I was then completely open and not resistant. Uh, Dr. Ian Stevenson had schooled me on how to work with a medium. You try not to let your face show any expressions. You let the person do all the talking. You don't even ask questions. You let it flow. But I did hear myself later on in the tape when it was transcribed. I visibly gasped. I mean, audibly gasped <laughs> because it was so impactful to me. And she went on from there to say a lot of different things that, as I said, some of them were meaningful. Others became meaningful later. And some of them I didn't know. And I had to check up with my family because my grandmother's family was, she was born in London, but her family had come from Austria. And I knew very little about that branch. And so there was a lot about that family that I had to research and it was all totally accurate. Not any of it coming from my mind, not any of it coming from my mother's because she didn't know them either, or my father. So there was a lot of really good information, pages and pages worth. When it was typed up, the interview lasted for about, I would say, two hours. Uh, and during this interview, she turned to Bob Scutch, my husband, who was sitting quietly in the corner and running the tape recorder. Uh, and she suddenly said, why aren't you healing? And, and he said, I beg your pardon. And she said, you're a healer. Don't you know you're a healer? Why aren't you healing? And he said, well, he didn't know what to say. So I don't know. She said, when you get back to the States and you go to a, you go to a meeting someday with your wife, there'll be a woman who will approach you from Chile and she will say that she is your teacher. Make sure that you accept her invitation. Now, this was you know, stuff to happen yet in the future. It wasn't very impactful on this, but he said, okay, okay. And then she went on to telling me things about my grandmother. And basically what I wanted to share with our listeners and with you, Matt, is I'm going to not go through all the details, but only the part that is so relevant to all of us who are students of the course. Towards the end of this sitting, she said to me, uh, your grandmother wants you to trust. And I said, thinking I was a pretty trusting person, like, what should I trust? And she said, no, you silly girl. Oh, she said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's our British word, trust. You call it a not-for-profit. She wants you to start a not-for-profit organization immediately as soon as you get back to the States. And I said, what for? She said, don't ask what for. You figure out what you want to do, and you start this organization right away. And in a few years to come, you will know what for. But meanwhile, you do it right away. And it was a directive. It was very clear. And I said, all right, we will. And um, we certainly didn't forget that because when we went back, we transcribed immediately this whole session, and there it was. So Bob Scutch and I did indeed call our friend who was a lawyer and say, how do you do this? And he started a not-for-profit organization for us, and we called it Foundation for Parasensory Investigation, since that's what I was the most interested in. And a charter was made by our lawyer which was pretty broad, and it even included the investigation whether the human being has indeed a continuing spiritual life after death. Um, we just let it happen. We just did it. And we used it to put in some of our own funds and raise funds to sponsor conferences, some little research here and there for universities who couldn't quite you know, make the amount of money they needed for the research 
And we felt that it was something useful. And eventually, we were running pretty large conferences on parapsychology. And we started with one at New York University, which was the first of its kind in a university. And people from all over the country who are excellent researchers and renowned in their field came to present their papers and their view. So it, it had its purpose. It did, it did very well for what it could do, run by just two people and no more. Uh, but I was always aware that Ina Twig had also said, because I could always refer back to this transcription, that hold my head up high and hold the banner even higher, that there will be a lot of controversy about what I'm going to do. And I should never be afraid because they, and I'm putting they in quotation marks because I still don't know who the they are, are behind this and will always be with you. Well, that was very comforting to know that anything that I had to do in the future, there was a group of unknowns, <laughs> unseens, uh, who were going to be helping me because I sure didn't know whatever it was. And that's what I mean. The seeds of the Foundation for Inner Peace were planted in my mind that day, although I didn't know it until 1975, four years later, when we had the manuscript of A Course in Miracles on our hands and Helen and Bill and Ken Wapnick and I were given instruction to publish this course, make sure it was published through a not-for-profit organization, that the people who were to do the work were to be students of the course and nothing else, and other directives about how to publish the course, all in one volume, et cetera, et cetera. There was, to me, going back, my personal beginning of A Course in Miracles. And also, Bob Scutch, when we came back to New York, did indeed go to a few conferences with me of the things I was interested in. He was a wonderful uh, partner, and he'd come along, but not that interested. And this particular day, a woman healer from Chile, Carmen de Barazza was her name, was giving a talk to a bunch of people. And uh, we were all very interested in her abilities. And she gave some demonstrations, had a film and slides. And when we were about to leave, she left her podium, came down to where we were leaving, standing up already, grabbed Bob's arm and said, you are my student." And we both burst out laughing because it's exactly what Ina Twig had said, that Bob was to say yes. So he was prepared to say yes and did indeed study with Carmen for a year, which resulted in him, let's say, uh, bringing out his deep skills at helping people in pain. And uh, which he did for not just family members, but eventually for people we never even heard of. And he worked with doctors, too. He did seem to have this ability of removing his consciousness, or I'll say his ego, and being in a place of peace. And you can call it prayer or meditation or openness. And Bob was not a religious person at all. Um and be able to put his hands on someone or even from distance to be able to affect uh, their well-being. So, you know, here was another thing that we were told that came true. And not long after the healing started one day, uh, Bob was taking off our bedstead and he saw that I had a left an open book on it that I was reading about what they called the sleeping prophet, Edgar Casey. Oh, sure. I have a feeling that you, Matt, certainly would know about this. Yeah. And a lot of people listening to our podcast would know that Edgar Casey was probably the best studied of all the unusual people uh, in this country, well studied in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And he had the amazing ability of being able to diagnose illness from either close or far away and also give spiritual advice. It was definitely higher information coming through him. And he was a deeply spiritual man. Uh, so his, his belief system allowed all of this to be perfectly uh, accomplished in his lifetime. And Bob, I was reading this book about him. And it was open, and Bob Scutch didn't want me to lose my place. So kindly, he took a piece of newspaper, cut off a little piece 
to make a little bookmark and he put it there and he saw the words, anyone can do automatic writing. Anyone can do automatic writing. And so Bob was very quiet, New England-like in temperament, spoke very few words. He picked up a pad of legal-sized paper and he said, I'm going in the living room now and I'm going to do automatic writing. <laughs> and I said, really? And he says, well, it says so in your book. I'm going to test it out. And first he wrote, the first night, a couple of squiggles didn't mean anything. But the next night, things started to come through him that amazed me. I knew they were not Bob Scutch's ego, ordinary thoughts, but definitely coming from his higher self. In fact, it turned into after two years of writing every night, he took the parts that he liked the best, which some of it in itself was in in iambic pentameter poetry. And I called it my introduction to A Course in Miracles because it said in a much simpler way many of the ideas that the course itself brought forth when I actually read the manuscript. And uh, he put it in a little book for himself and his family because uh, it was quite beautiful, as I said, like unto poetry. And uh, we self-published it. And that was the end of that until this last Christmas, I believe, I suddenly started thinking about that again, hadn't seen it in over 40 years, found an early copy and said, she, I would love to share this with our staff and other people we love. And so we reprinted it and it's now on Amazon. It's called Messages from My Higher Self by Robert Scutch. Uh, you take a look at this little booklet um, and it's very small and very short. And you see why Bob and I were given this material because I was given this material as much as he was since I read it every day. And I certainly helped him with the publishing. Look what was going on here. We had never published a book, but we published this little book. Got the course two years after that. I already knew that automatic writing could come from anybody who's heart and mind were open. Anybody who had said, yes, I will, at the level of spirit, not at the level of ego. I'm talking about two levels here, at the level of spirit. Because I saw my own husband, who was not affiliated with any religious tradition, born Jewish, but never followed up on it, no education uh, in a spiritual way, write things that were precursors for him and for me, to accepting the course completely without any doubt when we saw it. And I think if there's a message in this story, and we're talking about forgiveness, certainly talking about forgiveness, since that is the theme of the podcast, I'll wind up with my, my concepts on this. Forgiveness is a quiet thing. You know, it stands silently by and does nothing. And it, it waits until you invite it in because it is the Holy Spirit itself. It's the attribute of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is always there. So what happened in this situation? Two people who certainly didn't believe in does human consciousness survive bodily death, but were willing to look. <laughs> One person who didn't believe in anything from a religious or spiritual point of view, one person who did, I was the one who did. I was the one who grew up with a psychic grandmother and, and was there when my daughter was born and started to show the same evidence. Um, well, his writing was evidence that this is in all of us. This is in all of us. And that the forgiveness motto to me here is that I forgave myself for any doubts that I might have about the truth of these ideas, even though they came from my very own husband, that I was ready to accept a different thought system before I received the course. I was being so carefully prepared for it, even to have experience in publishing to know a large body of people who are ready for their next step 
out of the psychic and into the spiritual, it was all right there. And it was like it was being funneled through me. And I didn't seem to have anything to do with it except to just follow it along, not to promulgate particularly, but just to to really believe in it. And the belief and the faith in this inner voice got stronger and stronger until I started to forgive myself for other thoughts that I had that I couldn't bear, which weren't happy thoughts against people. I held grudges and realized that I had a mini preparation for the course and forgiveness had begun even before that. (laughs) Wow. It's amazing how all these threads are woven together to create this tapestry and uh, really remarkable sharing there, Judy. So the course does say some things about there being no death. Do you, do you happen to have any of those quotes top of mind? Well, I would say this. I find the best part of the course to read, instead of just excerpting, is the Song of Prayer, which is the last um, paper, I'll call it, paper pamphlet we had in a pamphlet form that Helen took down, and it came after the course was already published. And I would say it's even continued advanced thinking. We know our learning does not end at the last page of A Course in Miracles. We're told that throughout. But this, to me, is like the beginning of a next step. It's like what we're headed towards. And because of that, we included it in the publication of the book itself. We used to have it an individual pamphlet sat and a pamphlet on psychotherapy, practice, purpose, and process, and found out that very few people knew about it. But when they found out about it, well, why, why don't we know about this? So we made the decision through guidance, of course, to include this in the book itself. So anyone who has A Course in Miracles, third or second edition, can find at the very end of its song of prayer. And I would say, if you reread that, and it's short, if you reread that, it will tell you all you need to know about it. In fact, I've done some, had friends do some beautiful calligraphy for our foundation that we use when someone we care for has died uh, to send the family. Uh, and they all say, oh my God, you know, you know, this was so helpful because it gave me such a different sense of what dying is and it helped a lot. So that's what I would suggest rather than me give a few quotes from here and there. Sure. Uh, you know, one of them, there is no death. The son of God is free. You know, I am not a body. I am free. I'm still as God created me. And uh, death is not our reality. Death is just a continuation of the dream. Uh, we need to awaken seriously and literally into the real world from which God himself takes the next step to what the Course calls heaven. Um, The real world is a suspension of all ego belief and seeing only with Christ's vision, the Holy Spirit's eyes, whatever we choose to call it, where there is nothing but love, acceptance, and unity. Judy, when you say with guidance or you ask for guidance, maybe you could just talk about how you get that guidance when you ask questions, you know, sometimes you hold hands with Tam or Bob. And what does that, what does that look like that process where you ask for guidance? I would say that it's different for many people and we have to have such an open mind about it. The first step would be that we want to, that we dare to, that we believe that we're going to get something um, that we need it. Uh, because it can come from being in a bookstore and all of a sudden that, as someone once said, that heavy blue book fell right at my feet. (laughs) (laughs) It was, of course, of course, in miracles when he was looking for spiritual help. And someone said, my mother died and this was on her bookcase. I knew she was a student of the course, but I was never interested because of her death. I started to open it up. And so it's become mine. There are many ways the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Also, you can say, what does speaking directly mean? It means opening your heart and letting the thought come. Helen always called it the voice, 
with a capital V, but she was very insistent upon telling people it had nothing to do with the body and auditory. It had nothing to do with the ear as a mechanism. It's the thought inside. The thought comes to you and impresses itself upon you. You know, a lot of people used to say, I have a gut feeling, I've got a hunch of this or that. You could be pretty sure it's coming from your higher source if it brings you peace and it's helpful to you and others. Uh, don't be very um, rigid about having to hear a voice when you ask a question, although that can happen too. Hearing a voice or feeling a thought is more like it. Uh, we do ask for guidance together at the Foundation for the Peace. It's our modus operandi. It's the way we work. Uh, it's what we're given to do, and so we do it, and thank goodness we do, because otherwise we wouldn't have the slightest idea of what to do at any given time. But we do get guidance, and we're used to feeling, hearing, uh, and often, although the words aren't the same, when we sit and we have quiet time together, we either meditate or ask in prayer, will you please help us change our mind about this situation and show us direction? we're going to get, it's all going to be the same, but possibly people, different people get different parts of it. So to say hearing, I, I would not want people to think it's limited to that and therefore they can't hear. I know someone who studied the course for 32 years and he was a brilliant guy. And he came one day and said, you know, I go to meditation a lot and I study uh, Buddhism and I take the course with me and I can never really hear the Holy Spirit. And, and I said to him, well, wh what are you expecting? He said, I'm expecting to hear a voice like Ellen did. And I played him a 13-minute segment, which we have on our website, uh, www.acim.org, uh, where Helen is actually saying how she quote unquote heard the course. And she says very succinctly, she called it the voice, but it's more of an inner feeling of rightness about it. Uh, I would much rather let you hear it in her own voice and her own words than describe it to you. And I think it's worthwhile the 13 minutes listening to it. Well, that's great. I'll include that in the show notes. Well, Judy, this was quite an interesting uh, exploration we went on today. Everything from uh, starting with your with Tam and your grandmother weaving all the way through to Ina Twig and Bob's automatic writing and how to hear guidance. Is there any kind of thoughts you want to share as we wrap up? Yeah, I think, it, I think all of these things come with humor and that's what makes me happy because laughter certainly is, you know, when you're laughing, you can't be fearful. When you're laughing, love and laughter coexist. You can't hate anyone when you're laughing. And so much of it comes with humor and laughter to me. Uh, so I will say that I did continue for a year with Dr. Ian Stevenson. He supplied me with all sorts of very excellent mediums, both men and women. Uh, I won't say all over the world, but some were in England, some were in this country. One was in Canada. And after the year was over and I was having the last sitting, although I didn't know it was the last sitting, my grandmother came to me again, as usual, through all of these sittings over the years and said through the medium, will you please tell my granddaughter that it's a year today since she began this search and that she doesn't know by now that there is no death, she just better stop. <laughs> <laughs> So I got just the way my grandmother would say it. And I stopped because I did know. And as I said, this was part, I do believe, of my personal training to receive the course. <laughs> well, what a wonderful way to end, Judy. Thanks so much for sharing all this wonderful wisdom today. We really appreciate it. And what uh, touching and moving stories you have. You've got an endless amount of it. Now I add Margaret Mead to the list of people, you know, you have like a Forrest Gump experience, Mother Teresa, um, all these people that you've met over the years that uh, is just incredible. And I did find that quote from Margaret Mead that she's famous for. Let me see mm -hmm. if I can pop it up real quick. Oh, yes. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. 
Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. And, you know, I will continue from that because that was a very powerful quote to me, too. It doesn't take a majority. It doesn't take anything but a small, committed group of people. I remember a friend of mine, Marilyn Ferguson, wrote a very early book in what we call this particular endeavor or movement. And it was called The Aquarian Conspiracy. And in it, she says that every person who starts to awaken like this, she calls an imaginal cell, as if we're one huge mind and we all are cells as part of it. And as one awakens, it touches another and it touches another. So I always love that idea of we are all the imaginal selves, we who ask the questions and follow through. It doesn't mean anyone's eliminated. It just means it's a question of consent. But the Course says, seek not to change the world, but change instead your mind about the way you see the world. So the Course is not talking about the world as our reality and ask us to let it teach us how to perceive through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, which is totally different than a group of people changing the world. In this case, it's one because we're all connected to each other, and therefore we are the group of everybody. Oh, that's great. I'll change that quote to, to imaginal cells instead of citizens. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, thank you, Judy, for another delightful episode, and I look forward to our next one. I do too, Matt. Have a very good day and week and year and month or whatever it is to you. Thanks so much for listening today. Please subscribe to Miracle Voices by hitting the subscribe button on your podcast app. If you are enjoying these conversations, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you use. And lastly, please visit us at miraclevoices.org and join our newsletter so we can stay connected. Until the next podcast, I want to leave you with my favorite course quote, when you want only love, you will see nothing else. Nothing else.